It's Sunday morning, and we are talking about David and Saul. Now, every message I preach is about predestination. Every message. Predestination is the only way to heaven. People will say, I thought faith was the only way to heaven. Well, it is. I thought repentance was the only way to heaven. Well, that's right. I thought to death to self was the only way to heaven. Well, that's true. I thought David Cross was the only way to heaven. That's right also. In fact, all of these are the same thing. It all goes back to the fact that the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeketh after God. If nobody seeks God and we're saved by grace through faith, then faith has to come from somewhere, and we don't have it in our hearts because we don't seek God. If repentance means to turn from self and turn to God, and it means, it's the word metanoia, metanoia in the Greek, And it means to be turned and think differently. And you can turn yourself. The Bible says there in Jeremiah, uh, the 18th chapter, turn thou me and I shall be turned. And after I was turned, I repented. I was ashamed. But you can't be ashamed if you're not seeking God. So God's got to put shame in your heart. And faith is the gift of God. Gift there in Ephesians 2.8 is not a gift wrapped up with a bow on it. It's the word doron, D-O-R-O-N. That's the word gift. It means a sacrifice. So faith is death to self, the sacrifice that God puts in our hearts. But how are you going to come by all of this? How are you going to turn when you can't turn? How are you going to have faith when you don't have any? How can you seek God when you can't seek Him, when no man seeks God? And all are sinners, and there's none that looks after God. If God doesn't pick Himself out of family and predestine them to have faith and for that faith to grow... And predestined them to repent. Repentance comes forgiveness. But you can't be forgiven without repentance. And you can't repent without rebuke. If God rebukes a man's heart, he will come to God. Forgiveness, offenses, means to pardon and release from prison. To release from prison. And prison is the word phulake, P-H-U-L-A-K-E, means the division of day and night or light and darkness. Well, that's predestinate. Forget the word predestinate and let's look at the Greek word, prohorizo. Throw, throw the Greek out to the wind. We don't care about that. The word that's been translated predestinated is prohorizo. It means to be for, 
place inside the horizo, and that's the word boundary. I said this a thousand times. It's not a simple boundary. It is a boundary of horizo. Horizo is our word horizon. Horizon is where the light shines. When the sun is shining down and you've got a horizon and this is the light here and this is the dark over here. So pardon and release from prison means to take from darkness to light and that is forgiveness, offenses, and that comes. That's how repentance comes about, and we have to have faith when we're rebuked. So God has to put all of that in our heart. So predestination is actually the only way to heaven. I've got messages I've titled that. Every righteous thing that comes into our life has to come from God because there's none righteous, not one there in Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12. And nobody seeks God. Therefore, if you're going to come to God, he's got to bring you to him. That's what he said when he said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And then he said in John six forty four, no man can come to me except for one thing, the Father has sent me, draw him. That word draw is the word helco. Helco is the same word used in John, the 21st chapter, when Peter went fishing and he dragged in the fish. He drugged them in. It means to drag in. People say, that's dragging us against our will. No, that's changing our will to his righteous will and pulling us in. Nobody's going to come unless God drags you in. And you're only going to grow at the rate that God wants you to grow. Everybody's not going to grow the same. What does that have to do with Saul and David? It has everything to do with them. Everything. David did two things. That's an example to us. One is a good thing. One is a bad thing to teach us something. Number one, he never, David never, never said anything. He never said, gossiped, whispered, anything bad about Saul, about King Saul. And King Saul, King Saul from the 19th chapter of 1 Samuel to the 31st chapter of 1 Samuel, Saul was trying to kill David every day of David's life and David never had one bad thing to say about him. Can you learn that, Christians? Not one word of gossip. If anything, if you want to talk about somebody, a guy that was trapping you, trying to kill you, trying to murder you, and you had the blessing of God on your life and God had appointed you to be head of things, and Saul didn't back off from David. 
David, even after Saul was dead, in that, even in that first chapter of First Samuel, a young man came to David and said, I kill your enemy, Saul. David didn't say, well, good for you. He didn't say that. He said, you had the nerve, the gall, to kill the anointed of God. And he turned to two young men and said, fall upon him and kill him. He honored Saul as far as he could honor him. Never said one bad thing. David taught us that. No gossip. Stop saying things about one another as believers, regardless of what you think people are doing to you. But you don't know what they did to me. Has anybody ever come after you the way Saul went after David? They want to destroy you and remove you from the face of the earth. Has that ever happened to you? I doubt that seriously. Yet he, he, even when Ishbosheth, the surviving son of Saul, took over the northern kingdom, some young men came in, and Ishbosheth was a poor king. He didn't do much of anything. He couldn't have the leadership of his father Saul. But two young men snuck in and killed him one night, and they went to David and said, We killed the rest of your enemy. And he said, You killed a righteous man? And he had two young men fall upon him to kill him. There in the third chapter of Second Samuel. Can we learn that? That's a real good illustration. David did that, and that's good. We're going to talk more about that. And then David, after he had an entire life of... What did David do? What did David do... Did he try to attack some Saul somewhat? No. He trapped him twice, once in a cave and once in a trench. And Abishai, David's, David's nephew, said, Uncle David, I'll kill this dog. David said, you won't touch him. He's the Lord's anointed. He had been anointed king over Israel by Samuel there in the 12th chapter of First Samuel. He said, you don't touch him. If God wants him dead, God will make him dead. Let me just say this. If God wants your enemy destroyed, he'll do it in his time, not in yours. It's not your business to even give him a hard time. Boy, I have learned that. You know, I was past 74. I learned that. If God wants to get my enemies, that's up to him. Vengeance belongs to him, not me and not you. Boy, if we can learn that. And then... The thing that he taught us that we shouldn't do, after all of this is done, David somehow gets lifted up in his pride at the end of his life, lifted up in pride, and somehow he wants to take credit for all of his victories. And he numbers Israel. Numbers Israel. Now the Bible has two places talking about him numbering Israel. The Bible says there in that 24th chapter Second Samuel that God provoked David to number Israel. 
Then it says over there in the 21st chapter of First Chronicles that Satan provoked David to number Israel. Now, somebody asked me before church, we were talking to him about how I studied. I don't leave anything to itself. I'll go back and find out what everything means. And I've taught on this before, not, not as thorough as I hope to teach this morning. But the, what David was doing, David was lifting himself up in pride because of the number I don't know exactly how the number of fighting men fighting men in Israel somehow pride of course Satan has something to do with it let me say something about Satan he cannot do anything that God doesn't want him to do if Satan provokes David to do anything it's going to be just like Job when Job comes before Satan comes before God and says, have you considered my servant Job, how he escheweth evil, how he's the richest man of the East? And Satan says, well, if you'll turn him over to me, I'll cause him to curse you and die. God says, all right, now, here's your orders. You can take everything he has. Don't you touch his body. You like me? Satan goes, yes, sir. Just like some, just suck some sergeant in the army. Salutes God and says, yes, sir. And don't you touch his body. He says, yes, sir. Satan could only do what God wanted him to do. God wanted him to do that because he says so at the last chapter. He said it was to try, it was to try Job and make him mature. Well, the Bible says that the Savior is coming and carries camels away. What gets me, it says the fire of God fell from heaven. It doesn't say the fire of Satan fell from heaven. The fire of God fell from heaven. And then it says they came in and stole all of his sheep and all of his asses and everything he had. And then what's amazing to me, it says his seven sons and three daughters were feasting in a house. And a great wind came and blew the house down. Now, do you think that's Satan? When you go to the 37th, 38th chapter of Job, the Bible says God talks to the snow, talks to the wind and tells it to blow where it blows. The winds belong to God. The Bible says the great winds belong to him. The hurricanes are his. The small winds, the tornadoes are his. Everything is God's. So when the winds blow the house down, that's God's wind. It's not Satan's wind. And then Job sits in sackcloth and ashes and said, The Lord giveth, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That word name is the word shem. It means authority. He said, God's authority, God's shem, killed my sons and daughters. And I love the last verse of the first chapter. It's the Bible speaking, and it says, And all this Job sinned not with his lips, nor charged God foolishly. The Bible says he tells the truth when he said, I killed his sons and daughters. I did it. And Satan had permission from God, and it was only because it was God's will. Now, let's look at those two verses in First, in Second Samuel 24 and 1. 
Let's see what it says. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Why? Because of what's going on in chapter 23. And what David evidently has assumed. David has assumed that the might of his army has conquered all these people. And the Lord kindled against Israel and he moved David again to say, Go number Israel and Judah. But the 24th chapter doesn't tell you about David numbering Israel and Judah. But the first, the 21st chapter of 1 Chronicles will tell you how he numbered them and how many were in Judah and Israel. Let's look at that. Go to 1 Chronicles. But you can't understand this unless you go to 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles. Now, how can it be God and Satan? It depends on the definition of Satan. What it depends on. First Chronicles 21. Now, this is going to tell you exactly how many people he numbered in, in Israel. And when he numbers them, you can see that David is taking credit for all of his victories. Now, look here. He says here in the 21st chapter... And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Satan, does that mean the devil? No. The word in the Hebrew is spelled exactly the same way as in English. Satan. It's spelled S-A-T-A-N, but it's pronounced S-A-W-T-A-W-N, Satan. It means opponent. Adversary. Now, how can that be God? David made God his adversary when he starts taking credit for what has happened. That word adversary is the common word for Satan. There's one other word for Satan in the Old Testament. But look here. Go back here to to 1 Samuel. Go back to 1 Samuel, the 29th chapter. We need to look at this word adversary. Sometimes this word is translated adversary. Look here in 1 Samuel, the 29th chapter, and we'll read a little bit here. 1 Samuel, the 29th chapter. This is where David is wanting to go with King Achish and go with Achish to attack Saul. Now, David has made friends with Achish. That's where he went over there to Gath. Achish was the king of Gath, a Philistine. When David was running from Saul over here in the the land of the Philistines, or what we would call the Gaza Strip, he runs over here to a place called Gath, and he makes friends back earlier in this book with Achish, and he 
Achish is going to take the Philistines and attack Saul in his last great battle at a place called Gilgal. And David tells Achish, who he's gained favor with, but David lies to Achish. David will go out and attack the Philistines during the day, come back at night, and Achish will say, where have you been? He said, well, I've been out here attacking some cities in Israel. But he was attacking Achish's friends. He's a little on the sneaky side, you know. And he tells Achish, I want to go with you. I want to bring up the rear. You're going to go up here and attack Saul at Gilgal. And when you read the scriptures, you can tell that he really doesn't want to attack Saul. He wants to bring up the rear of Achish's army. And David's army will be back here. David's army. And they will attack Saul at Gilgal together. But David's whole idea is to sandwich Achish and the Philistines in between him and Saul, even though Saul is angry at David and wants to kill David. David wants to help Saul. Figure that out. (laughs) I can't figure that out. And here's Achish telling the Philistine princes, we want David, he's after all, he's our friend. We want him to accompany us as we go up there to attack Saul. And let's look and see what happens. And the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek. And the Israelites pitched by a fountain which is in Jezreel. That's up in northern Israel. And the lords of the Philistines passed on by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed on in the re-reward. Re-reward means to bring up the rear. Oh. But Achish is going to have to get permission from the princes of the Philistines to let him come. Then said the princes of the Philistines, what do these Hebrews here, what are they doing behind us? They're smart. They know something's not right. Achish has been charmed by David. David's a charmer. And Achish said unto the princes of the Philistines, is not this David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, which has been with me these been with me three these years. He said he's been with me several years. And I have found no fault in him. That's because he's lying to Yakish. David's lying. There's there's one of the lies that's in the Bible. David's telling him he's going out to attack Philistines during the day. He goes out he says he's going out to attack Israelites and he goes out and attacks Philistines. Since he fell unto me on this day. And the princes of the Philistines were wroth with Achish, and the princes of the Philistines said unto him, Make this fellow return. Tell him, No, we don't want him bringing up the re-reward. No rear end for us from him. He'll sandwich us in, and he'll destroy us. Achish trusted David. The Philistine princes, they weren't close to him, and they saw, they saw David's games. That he may go again to his place, which thou hast appointed him. Achish had given him, given David a city called Ziklag. Tell him to go home to his city. And let him not go down with us to battle. Lest in the battle he be an adversary. Lest David be a Satan to us. 
same word, Satan numbering Israel. He is an adversary to them. And every time you find this word, not every time, sometimes it's the word Satan. Sometimes it's just the word adversary. Look here in in uh, 1 Kings 11, 14. 1 Kings 11, And 14. And the Lord stirred up an adversary, a Satan, unto Solomon, Hadad, the Edomite. He was of the king's seed in Edom. There's another word, adversary. You've got this all through the Old Testament. So when Satan, how could. David be an adversary of God. God set David up so that David would start taking credit. Watch out when you take credit. A man that speaks of himself seeks his own glory. David was speaking of himself in the 23rd chapter of 2 Samuel. He was taking credit. First of all, we need to read how many men he had in that 21st chapter of First Chronicles. Let's look over and see how many people he had. The number of people in his army went to David's head. And he provokes God into being his adversary by a choice of three things that he's going to bring upon Israel. Either the sword, the famine, or the pestilence. You pick the one you want, David, since you numbered Israel. It was David's pride, and I'm sure Satan had everything to do with it. But not without God's permission, without God saying it was God that caused him to number Israel in his pride. Now look here and we'll see exactly how many people were in Israel at the time. David's an old man. When we get to the next chapter, the first chapter of 1 Kings, he's dying. He's an old man here, and it's time to die. Maybe he got a little crotchety in his old age and started taking credit, because that's what happened. Look here, 21st chapter. We'll read how many men. You won't find it in, the, in, in 1 Samuel, but you'll find how many men he's bragging on here in, in this 21st chapter. What I'm trying to say to you is don't take credit for anything. Everything that's happening is the will of God. Everything. Whatever you have, don't give people a hard time. Learn to keep your mouth shut. Boy, we have to open our mouths and get to bragging, don't we? Now look here in the 21st chapter. Satan stood up. Our God actually stood up. He was, he was David's Satan. David's adversary. You remember when the Lord said, when Jesus said to Peter, I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to be crucified. And I'll resurrect again the third day. And Peter said, be it far from thee, Lord. That's not going to happen. Jesus said, get there behind me, Satan, opponent. You're opposing my words. You can oppose God's words. And we do that by our actions, don't we? And Peter had become an opponent of God. Because he said, you're not going to be crucified and resurrected. Be it far from me. And Jesus calls him opponent. 
Anything that opposes God's word the way we act makes us a Satan to God. Makes us his adversary. You got that word adversary mentioned several times. Uh, goodness, nineteen twenty-two of Second Samuel. You got it in uh, uh, Psalms thirty-eight and twenty. You got it in Psalm seventy-one thirteen. You got it in Psalms one hundred nine four, one hundred nine twenty, one hundred nine twenty-nine. The word adversary. It's the same word, Satan. Now, let's look here in the 21st chapter and see how many people David numbered. Boy, it's easy to take credit when you've got this many people he's talking about. Now, Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And David said to Joab, to the rulers of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan. Beersheba was the southernmost city in Israel at that time. Dan was the northernmost city. And bring the number of them to me that I may know what it is, how many people are in my army that are conquering all my enemies. And Joab answered, The Lord make his people an hundred times so many more as they be, but my Lord the king, are then at all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why do you need to know how many? You know what I believe? Pride. Look what I got. This is how I've ended up old and with everybody looking to me. To me. This is an example that we're not supposed to do. But my Lord the King, are they not all the Lord's servants? Why doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Joab, this kind of a sleazy nephew who's commanding his, his forces, said, why do you need the number of them? Wherefore Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem, and Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David, and all they of Israel were a million, a thousand thousand, and a hundred thousand that drew the sword. And Judah was four hundred, threescore, and ten thousand. So what has he got? A million, fourscore. He's got a score is twenty, fourscore, hundred three score and 10,000. He's got nearly 600,000, a million 600,000 soldiers, fighting men. That's easy to take credit, isn't it? That's easy to wallow in all of your opulence and say, look what I have done. God says, I didn't need that many men to conquer anybody. And 10,000 men that drew the sword What have we got there? A hundred thousand. A thousand thousand is a million. A hundred thousand men that drew the sword. That's a million, one hundred thousand. Four hundred, three score, and ten thousand. Four hundred, three score. That would be four hundred thousand. Three score and ten would be sixty, seventy. Four hundred and seventy thousand. And another hundred thousand. 
570,000, a million 570,000. That's easy to get caught up with yourself with that many, isn't it? Did David need that many men to conquer? What, what did David need to conquer his enemies? Obedience to God, according to Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter. You'll go against your enemy one way, and they'll flee seven ways. All you have to do is obey me. You say, isn't he obeying God? Well, yes, to a degree. He's gotten caught up with something. His numbers, they don't mean nothing. Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. So Joab left some of them out. Maybe two million people. Swordsmen. And God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, he smote Israel with a plague and killed 70,000. Where did you get this, Jim, that this is David being proud? Go back to the 23rd chapter of Second Samuel. Let's look at David numbering his mighty men. You see that in the 23rd chapter. All right. 23rd chapter of Second Samuel. Dave's going to tell you about all the great men he has in Israel. Unbelievable fighting men. Just real, real warriors. Men that you don't want to mess with. But does it take that? No. It takes obedience to God. It doesn't matter how you think you can fight your enemy. You can't. Not with any numbers. It's not you. God will show you it's not you. And he'll show me it's not me. Now look here in the 23rd chapter. He's going to number his mighty men. And then he's going to get angry at Israel. He's going to tell people about these fantastic warriors he's got. Let's read 23rd chapter. And these be the last words of David. These are David's words. David, the son of Jesse, said, The man who was raised up on high, the anointed of God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me. Now, I don't know if this is the Spirit of God or this is just David's words. Are you trying to put down, David? I'm trying to tell you we can't take credit for our life and what has happened. It's God that does everything he does. Everything is the will of God. I told Judy before church, when somebody says, Jim, I'm sorry I wasn't at church, I say you weren't supposed to be there. If you were supposed to be here, you'd be here. Everything that's going on is the will of God. God hasn't operated in your mind yet enough to cause you to want to be here for certain times. If you're not here, you're not supposed to be here, don't you? Haven't you figured that out yet? God has to work upon you. My mouth don't need to work upon your ears to cause you to be here. To cause you to commit to Christ and quit counting your victories in your life and thinking it's you. It's not you. Everything that's going on is the will of God. I really actually believe it. I hadn't learned to believe it until I passed 70. I don't complain about nothing anymore. Just It's the way it's supposed to be. If somebody dies, I say, you know, that's the will of God. 
The Spirit of the Lord spake unto me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just and ruling the fear of God. Now, he's going to say a lot of things in God's favor here. But he's going to number his mighty men. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant. And that's true. Ordered in all things sure, for this is my salvation, and all my desire, although he make it not grow. But the sons of Belial, another name for Satan, shall be all of them as thorns which thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. Now here's the names of the mighty men of Israel that David's going to tell you about. It doesn't take mighty men to conquer your enemies. It takes obedience to God. Whom David had, the Tekelmite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains, the same was Adonai, the Esnite. He lifted up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. How's that for a mighty man? You don't want to mess with this guy, do you? And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines that were there together, together to battle. And the men of Israel was gone away. And this man, Eleazar, arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave unto the sword. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day and the people returned after him to spoil. After him was Shammah, the son of Aji, the Harite. The Philistines were gathered together into a troop. There was a piece of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. And he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines. And the Lord wrought a great victory. And three of the thirty chief went down and came to David in the harvest time under the cave at Adullam. That's back earlier in the book. And the troop of the Philistines pitched the valley of Rephim. And David was then in a hold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And three mighty men, notice mighty men, break through the host of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it. David's at war at this point. And brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out to the Lord and said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy for their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. 
He's going to tell you about the three mighty men. One of them's his nephew. <laughs> we know how bad Abishai is. He is not something you want to get in a fight. He will kill you at the drop of a hat. And Abishai, the brother of Joab, was one of the three mighty men. The son of Zeruiah, that's David's sister, was chief among these three mighty men. And he lifted up his spear against 300. Abishai did this. We've talked about Abishai. And he killed all of them. It sounds like a boast, doesn't it? And had the name among three. I couldn't figure out for years, why would David number Israel? Why would God get angry? He was proud. And this is at the end of his life. Don't think I am old enough not to get proud over what I'm doing. Because David's old here. He's going to die very shortly after this. Was he not one of the honorable of the three? Therefore, he was their captain, howbeit he attained not unto the first three. Talking about Abishai, there's three that's tougher than he is. And Beniah, here's the man that's going to take the place of Joab, David's nephew, to be commander and chief of all the armies of Israel. Beniah, he is a bad dude. And Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man, Kabziel, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. Huge guys. And they went down also and took on a lion in a pit and killed him too. Sounds like a boast to me that you. And he slew an Egyptian, a goodly man, and the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down with him to the staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. This chapter doesn't seem like it's talking about much but chronology, but it's talking about the great men in David's army as though they were the reason for David's victories, and they weren't. How do you know that, Jim? Well, because I had victories before and didn't have near this, these men. These things did Beniah, the son of Jehoiada. Now, we're going to see Beniah... But now is the one that kills Joab in second in First Kings, in that third chapter. But now is the one that kills Shemai. You remember that? Shemai is the one that threw stones at David, and had the name among the three mighty men, and he was more honorable than the thirty. But he attained not to the first three, and Daniel, uh, David, gave him over his guard. And Asahel, who was killed a long time before this, back. In the second chapter of Second Samuel, Asahil, who was brother to Joab and Abishai, was one of the thirty. He was also a mighty man in battle. That's why when Asahil took off after Abner, who was the commander in chief of Saul's armies, Asahil was a tough fighter, but he took on the wrong man when he took on Abner. Abner was a commander tough as nails and he warned Asahel if you catch me and you will because you're young and faster than me I will kill you if you catch me and he did and he did he caught him and he killed him Shammah the Herodite Elika the Herodite 
I'm not going to read all these to you. I'll just look down here at verse 34. Eliphalet, the son of Ahazbei, the son of the son of Maacathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite. Now we've already said that Eliam in the eleventh chapter of of Second Samuel was the father of who? Huh? Who was he? Somebody said it. Eliam was the father of Bathsheba. So Ahithophel, David's chief counselor, was Bathsheba's grandfather. And he goes on down here. Uriah the Hittite was one of the mighty men there in verse 39, and he was killed by Joab. Now, then you move into God saying, you got proud. So he says, I'm going to give you a choice, David. He sends a prophet to him. And Gad was the prophet that came to him in verse 13. So Gad came to David and told him and said, you got a choice of three things. God's three judgments are always the sword, the famine, the pestilence. And the beast is the last one. So he says, 24. Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine, there's a famine, sword, famine, pestilence, beast, come unto thee, or will you flee three months before your enemies, which would be the sword, while they pursue thee, or will you flee, or will you have three days pestilence. There's the sword, the famine, the pestilence, the three judgments of God that God always says he's going to go through. And then he'll send the beast finally. In the land I advise. Advise me, which one of these curses do you want to have, David? Boy, what a choice. You want to die or you want to die or you want to die? Which one? And see what answer I will return to him that sent me. This has to be something in David's life. The only thing I can see is pride about the number he has and the great mighty men, the men that could go out and kill a lion. And David said unto Gad, I'm in a great strait. I guess you are. You're going to ask me to choose which one of these you want me to bring upon Israel so they can start dying? Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord. That would be the... That would be the pestilence. For his mercies are great, and let me not fall in the hand of a man. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel from the morning, even to the time appointed, and there died, this is three days of pestilence, and there died of the people of Dan to Beersheba, from one end of Israel to the other, 70,000 innocent people because of David's pride. And he's at the end of his life. Don't think you're too old to get proud. Jim Brown. Boy, think about this. And from Dan even to Beersheba, 70,000 men. That's amazing what the angel, God says to the angel of the Lord. This has to be the death angel. It's probably Michael. It was Michael that killed 185,000 of the Assyrians there in the 18th, 19th chapter of 2 Kings. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it. For what? 
counting the mighty men. The Lord repented him of the evil. Doesn't mean God found a Baptist church and walked down the aisle and said, I want to repent. No, no. Repent means to turn. He turned and said to the angel that destroyed the people, it's enough. I've killed enough people now. This was God bringing evil upon the land. Stay now thine hand, and the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. I believe Arana's threshing floor was the same place where the altar of God was built later on with the temple because God always keeps the same place. And David goes to Arana and says, I have sinned, in verse 17, I have done wickedly. Why is David saying, I've done wickedly? Huh? What did he do? Numbering Israel. He, he numbered to take credit for all of his victories. You can't have a million and a half people and take credit. It's all those people that God blessed you with. Besides that, when David, when David was having victories over Saul, he didn't have no million men. At all. He had 400 at one point. He had 600 at another place. And he didn't have mighty men conquering the Philistines. They were everyday people. I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? The sheep he's talking about is Israel. What did these 70,000 men do that died because of my pride? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me, not against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, we're in altar in the Lord, unto the Lord, in the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and bowed himself before the king on his face unto the ground. And Arana said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, I want to buy the threshing floor to build an altar unto the Lord that the plague that God sent for three days because of my pride may be stayed from the people. And Arano said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer what seemeth good unto him. Behold, there be oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing instruments and other instruments of oxen to burn the fire with. I love David's answer. It applies to us. And all these things did Arana as the king gave unto him, unto the king. And Arana said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. I want to give you all this for free. Now look at David's words. And the king said unto Arana, No, I will sure buy it from thee at a price, neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. 
I'm not going to go to church and it don't cost me a thing. I'm not going to get your DVDs, Jim, and without having to pay for the rent and the lights and the salaries and the tapes and the TV. It's got a cost. If it doesn't cost you, you're not doing what God wants. Was David doing something wrong here? He said he was. What was he doing? He's involved in numbering Israel because they were so many. His army was great. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there the altar of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. Now, why is this such a big deal that he numbered all these? Well, let's look at some things here. Okay. Look over here at uh, the 22nd chapter of first of second Samuel. No, first Samuel, excuse me. Second Samuel. Huh? I'll get it in a minute. All right. I want us to see why David was was he not believing God? He was taking credit and glory for all of his victories. Is what he was doing by numbering all these mighty men of Israel. And God became David's Satan, his opponent in this, because he said, I am unhappy that you did this, even though I caused you to do it. Because you had pride in your heart, and I've desired Satan to come in and build a pride up in your heart so I can teach you something, so I can teach people grace and truth something. You can't ever take credit for what you've done. Now, look here in 22... In Second Samuel 22. Now, excuse me. First Samuel 22. First Samuel, excuse me. First Samuel 22. Now, I love this chapter. This is while Saul was chasing David. And I want you to see he didn't have any mighty man. And was David winning? Yes. It wasn't mighty men that caused him to win. Sometimes we have forgotten what God has done to our lives, haven't we? God had to crush me in the hospital, cause me to be willing to say the words that I say. I wasn't willing to say these words when I was a young preacher. I was telling, I was telling uh, Ben last night. I said. I'll say anything to anybody anytime about the Bible. I'll quote Romans 8, 29 to a doctor at the drop of a hat. I won't say it hard. I said, did you know that the Bible says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Did you know the Bible says that? I'll say that to anybody anytime. I was afraid to say that when I was 40. I was afraid to say that when I was 30. I just wouldn't say that at all. Now I'll say anything. I don't mean this in a boast. I mean, if you get old enough, you live long enough, we're not looking for goats to turn into sheep. We're just looking for the sheep that belong to God, and they will not reject Romans 8 and 29. 
and they won't reject the first chapter of Ephesians. He's chosen us in the end before the foundation of the world. Oh, they might challenge them, they might shake them up. But if they're sheep, they like sheep food. You can't make a dog mad by feeding, feeding him dog food. I got three dogs, and if you put it out in front of them, they'll gobble it up. They're not going to say, oh, I don't like that. They eat it. They're dogs. And sheep like sheep food. You may challenge them. They may go, well, oh, oh goodness, oh, gracious, oh, what was that he said? What did you say? I believe in telling the sheep everything that's good for the sheep. Now, let's read this right here. How many people and what kind of people did Ahab follow him when Saul was trying to chase him and kill him? Well, let's look and see. David therefore departed thence, 22 and 1, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither unto him. Now here's the kind of people David had in verse 2. Not mighty man of valor. And everyone that was in distress, <laughs> sounds like Jesus. And everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto David like Jesus. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. There wasn't a million, 580,000. No, sir. There was no mighty men. They were just everyday people. David has forgotten that in that 22nd, 24th chapter. Look over here in the 23rd chapter. His army has grown some. The 23rd chapter, verse 13. Oh, excuse me. Verse 13, same chapter. And David and his men, which were about 600, arose and departed out of Keilah and went whithersoever they could go. And it was told Saul that David was escaped with his 600 men. He didn't have a million, five hundred, six hundred thousand. And yet God was causing him to win throughout all of this. Here's what really gets me. You get to the end of that chapter. Saul has got him trapped in a box canyon, something like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. They're out there at a box canyon. Saul has got him surrounded. What does it take to get David out of this trap? God only. Does it take mighty men? No. It takes David's obedience to God. Look what it says. Look here in verse 25. And Saul also, also and his men went to seek David, and they told David, therefore, he came down into a rock and abode in the wilderness of Maon. When Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon, and Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David, his men, went on that side of the mountain, and David made a haste to get away for fear of Saul. 
And Saul has him trapped. No way out. Are mighty men going to deliver him? No. Are mighty men going to deliver you and your problems in life? Well, you think there's no way out. If we can, but here's the point. David is not going to fight Saul, and you don't need to be fighting your enemies. We don't need to be fighting or gossiping about our enemies. I'll probably have to finish this next week. We don't need to be trying to pull our enemies down by gossiping, by ripping them apart, by trying to get revenge. Revenge doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. We need to be gentle and quiet and peaceful as much as is possible, Paul told Timothy when he's passing there at Ephesus. And David made haste to get away for the fear of Saul, for Saul and his men compassed David and his men round about to take them. But there came a messenger unto Saul, saying, This is da 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 God to the rescue. No mighty men. No great lion-like men like Beniah. Nobody like, well, Abishai was there, but he's not going to kill everybody. Saying, Saul, haste, hurry up. Leave this man to himself. The Philistines are attacking Jerusalem. Who delivered him that day? Mighty man? Who's going to deliver you and your problems in life? You're not supposed to be talking. David never said one bad word about Saul while he was trying to kill him. When he had him trapped, he did not go after Saul, not with his mouth. The tongue is a, it's a fire set on fire from hell. David is not going to do that. He'll honor Saul every day that he can. He'll run away from him. He'll depart from him. He'll separate from Saul who wants to say bad things about David. And when David sees him, he'll say, Why are you giving me a hard time, Saul? I've loved you. Tell your enemies that. And come, for the Philistines have invaded the land, and therefore Saul returned from pursuing David. And David was trapped, and who delivered him? Who's going to deliver you? Is your tongue going to deliver you? I'll get that guy. No. David taught us something. Don't put down your enemy believers. Leave them alone. Learn that. I thank God I've learned that past 70. Leave them alone. If they're sheep, they'll be like Mary's little lamb. They'll come home wagging their tails behind them. If they belong to God. They may not come back here, but they'll go back to God somewhere someday. And David went out against the Philistines, wherefore they called that place Selahamah Lakath. Then David goes to En Gedi. God doesn't want us having more people so we can take credit. There's another man over here. God says, if you have too many people, you'll want the glory. If you have too much strength, you'll want the glory. The point is, we have to depend on God conquering our enemies, not us, not ourselves. Revenge belongs to God. Leave your enemies alone. If they gossip about you and say bad things about you, let them. What does that 12th chapter of Romans say? Give place to wrath. Give place to the orge. Orge was the wrath of 
anger, it's feminine gender. The reason it's feminine gender is the wrath of covetousness. When a man's covetous and he wants his way, if David had wanted his way and evolved in this, he'd have killed Saul when he got the chance. But he didn't. He said, this is the Lord's anointed. Every day of David's life, he did nothing but honor the man that wanted to kill him. Can you honor your fellow believers that want to destroy you? Boy, it's hard to do, isn't it? Yeah, but you don't know what they did. I don't care what they did. And God doesn't care what they did. God will get your enemies, but they're not your enemies. They're his enemies. Notice, God got Joab and Shammai right at David's death. It may have been right after he died. may not be in your lifetime when your enemies get brought down, but they're God's enemies, and he'll bring them down when he wants them down. We have to learn that. That is hard. Are, are you saying, Jim, that I need to put my approval on them? No, separate from them. But by the same token, you say, yeah, but I said this about them and it's the truth. It doesn't matter if you gossip about somebody and the words are exactly true. It's not true if you put an inflection in the tone of your voice that's negative. It's a lie. Gossip is gossip anyway. You slice it. You can't talk about people. I'm going to go into this further. I just don't have time to do it this morning. Now, you can be too strong. If you got too much, you're going to take credit. Go over here to go over here to uh, to. Let's look at Gideon in the book of Judges. Judges, the sixth chapter. Judges six. All right. Look here. There's a man named Gideon. They're in the judges. They're being ruled by judges there for three to four hundred years. In the sixth chapter, God comes to this man named Gideon. He's of the tribe of Manasseh. And the angel comes to Gideon. They're under the rule of the Midianites, Philistines. All these are evil people. They're living in the land of Israel. They didn't drive these evil men out there in that second chapter of Judges. There came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak which was in Orphra, verse 11, that pertained unto Joash the Abizarite. Joash is the father of Gideon. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Because the Midianites, they're under the rule of the Midianites in the land of Israel. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto Gideon and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, my mighty man of valor. But Gideon's going and said, Who, me? I'm a dirt farmer. What are you talking about? And Gideon said unto him, O oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? Where be all his miracles? And the Lord comes to Gideon. And he says, I want you to go out here. I want you to destroy all the Baal gods in Israel. And Gideon 
laid out, lays out a fleece before the Lord. Now, fleece is not, Lord, if you want me to go from this job making 30000 a year to that job making 60000 a year, uh, just uh, here's my fleece. Put uh, GP in the sky. Go preach or whatever. That's not a fleece. Gideon's fleece was, Lord, if you want me to go out here and attack these people and burn these idols down, make this fleece dry on the outside and wet on, on the edges. And he said, okay, and he did it. He said, let me ask you one more time. Do you really want me to go put my life on the line? If you do, make it the opposite. Wet on the middle and dry on the outside. That's a fleece. Lord, do you want me to lay my life on the line? Not, do you want me to make more money? That's not a fleece. And so Gideon, let me read some verses to you in chapter 7. Chapter 7. So Gideon goes out, and I like what happens. Gideon goes out and destroys the Baal gods all over Israel. And the people come to Joash's father and say to Joash, Bring your son out here. We want to kill him. He's destroyed all of our Baal gods. Look at what Joash tells him. Verse 31. This is Gideon's dad. Verse 31, chapter 6. Joash said unto all that stood against him, Will you plead for Baal? Will you, Rube? Are you going to fight for Baal? Isn't Baal a god? Well, if he's a god, can he fight for himself? <laughs> That's what Joash tells him. Will you plead for Baal or will you save him? He that will plead for him, let him put, be put to death whilst it is yet morning. If he be a god, let him fight for himself. Okay? Because one has cast down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbabel. That's Gideon. That's the nickname for him, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he hath thrown down his altar. So Jerubbabel is another name for Gideon. Now, you get into the seventh chapter. And the people there in verse 2 that are with thee are too many. Look here. Let's read 1 and 2. Then Jerubbabel, that's Gideon, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, of Herod so that the host of Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, you got too many people to attack the enemy. You couldn't take glory if you got this many people. I don't want you to have this many people. He's doing the same thing he was doing with David. You got too many where you can take credit. And the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. You got too many people. You're going to want the glory if you take this many people. Lest Israel vaunt itself against me, saying, Mine own hand has saved me. Sounds like that 23rd chapter of Second Samuel. All these mighty men have saved Israel. They didn't. 
When he had 400, God delivered him. When he had 600, God delivered him. Didn't he? Well, I have to be strong in order to serve God. No, you don't. All you have to do is be obedient to his word. That's it. And God will supply whatever need you have. Now, therefore, go and proclaim in the ears of the people, whatever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And they returned that day 20 and 2,000, and there remained 10,000 men to go fight the Philistines. There's going to be over 100,000 Philistines. And God says, that's too many for me to get the glory. I, I got to be strong and rich to serve God. No, you don't. Obey God. And the Lord said unto Gideon, the people are yet too many. 10,000 against over 100,000. They can still claim that they're good fighters. Bring them down into the water and I will try them for thee. Then I shall be that of whom I say unto thee shall go with thee. And the same shall go with thee and of whomsoever I say unto thee this shall be this shall not go with thee the same shall not go so he brought down the people into the water and the lord said unto gideon every one that lappeth of the water with his tongue as a dog lappeth and he's not looking up and he's not worried about the enemy he just got his head down there in the water like a dog laps shall thou sit by himself likewise every one that boweth down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were 300 men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the 300 men that lapped will I save you and deliver you from the Midianites. I don't want you to have many because I don't want you getting the glory. Sometimes we have too much, we get the glory. And that's what David's problem was. He wanted to take credit for all those men, those million and a half men. It's not a million and a half men that saves him. Remember Asa in the 14th chapter of Second Chronicles? Asa was a wonderful, righteous man of God. He was the king of southern Judah. You remember him? Asa, I'll just show it to you on the map. Asa was a great man of God. He cleaned out the land of all the Baal gods, cleaned it out clean. And there was peace in the land. And he had, had 500,000 men, fighting men. But he was attacked by a million Ethiopians that had 300 iron chariots. That chariots with the scythes on the side, and he didn't have a chance. Unless God was there. And he prayed this prayer, Lord, let not man prevail against thee. He didn't say against me. He said against you. And he went out there, and they, like the old saying goes, they whipped them hip and thigh, wiped them out. You got time and time and time again in the Bible. What I'm trying to point out, you're not supposed to fight your battle. When David went out against Goliath, 
He said, the battle belongs to the Lord. I love Jehoshaphat. The battle that you're fighting, you're not supposed to fight with your mouth, with your gossip, with anything. You're supposed to serve God, bow to his will, let the chips fall where they fall. And if your enemy attacks you, let them stay away from them. Don't put, make yourself available to them the next time or the third time. Stay away from them. Withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. Have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather rebuke them. Well, when you rebuke them, don't use cutting, angry, sarcastic, snide, nasty words. Just say, I can't fellowship there. I'll see you around. Boy, it's hard to learn how to live like a Christian, isn't it? Can you give up fighting people? I've given up fighting people. I'm not going to do that no more. Now Gideon goes out. And God says, what I want you to do. Over there in the 16th verse of chapter 7. He divided 300 men into three companies and put a trumpet in each man's hand. I don't want you to have any weapons. And you're going to, you're going to attack a hundred and something thousand these Midianites? No weapons? Well, all I want you to have is a trumpet in every man's hand and an empty pitcher and lamps within the pitchers. And I want you to light the lamps and stand on the side of this mountain and I want you to yell, the sword of the Lord and Gideon and break the lamps and I'll cause them to turn on each other. And they did. They started killing each other. If we can learn, it's not numbers we need to conquer. It's commitment to God and to Christ and to bow to his will and stop fighting your fights with gossip and with whispering and with... Gideon didn't put down the Midianites. They were his natural enemies. David did not put down Saul, who is the anointed of the Lord. Watch these guys and, and follow their example. Now look over here. Now here's what Gideon did. Look here in verse 10 of chapter 8. He kept saying, you got too many men. I only need 300 and all you need is lamps and, and just some lamps and some trumpets. Blow the trumpet, break the lamps, and shout the sword of the Lord in Gideon. And I'll confuse their minds and they'll kill each other. We don't depend on God to fight our enemies. We want to fight them ourselves with our mouths. I got much to say there. David never fought Saul with his mouth. Never gossiped, never whispered. Now, look here in verse 10. Now, this is what Gideon did with 300 men with no swords and no spears. Now, Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkar, and their host with them, about 15,000 men, all that were left of all the hosts of the children of the east, for there fell an 120,000 men that drew the sword of the Midianites, and 300 was all that God needed. He doesn't need everybody you think you need. You don't need everything you think you need to serve God. You don't need to get your enemies back. 
That's not what you need to do. There's so many illustrations of this. When Ahab went against Ben-Hadad in 1 Kings, the 20th chapter. Now, Ahab was an evil king in Israel. Ahab. He was an evil king. And Ben-Hadad was the king of Syria. And Ben-Hadad was always attacking Israel. So he comes down and tells Israel, I want an unconditional surrender. And God says, now Ahab is an evil king. I'm going to kill him, but don't you tell him an evil king in my land what to do. You shut your mouth. So God tells, he sends a prophet to Ahab. And they had over 100,000 Syrians. Over 100,000. And Ahab had 7,000 men of war. That's it. And Ahab says, God's, the prophet says to Ahab, you attack these men. So they attacked them in the mountains. And they beat the tar out of them. They attack them in the mountains. Well, the king of Assyria says, king of Syria, not Assyria. King of Syria says, well, your God is the God of the mountains. Remember I've told you that they said they had demons of the mountains and demons of the borders and demons of the sea. He called God a demon of the mountains. God says, you've made me mad now. He said, okay, prophet, go tell Ahab, I want you to attack them on the plains. Get out there on a plain. They got over 100,000 men. And they covered the plain, the Bible says. And these 7,000 men encamped against the Syrians and the Bible says they encamped like two little flocks of kids, like two little flocks of goats, and they killed them all. You see, when you're fighting your battles in life, it's not the numbers you've got or the amount of money you've got, and it's not your mouth will fight. If you're obedient to God, he's going to overcome your enemies. When he wants to, the way he wants to, you can't give God orders who needs to come down and be brought off their pedestal according to your thinking. That's not your business. Gossiping about somebody and trying to rip them off their pedestal, you're wasting your time. How do I know that? I've tried to do that. <laughs> I've tried to pull people down with my mouth. And the mouth is a, the tongue is a deadly fire. Set on fire from hell. It don't do you any good. You're not going to fight your battles. David kept saying, Lord, you plead my cause. You fight for me. I can't fight for myself. I had to be in my 60s before I found out that. You can't fight for yourself. You ever tried to fight somebody that's just like a post and they stand there and they're not going to bend? It's a waste of time. Yeah, but you know what they did to me. And they're in the church. I don't care what they did to you. And you know what? God doesn't care what they did to you. If they're an enemy, they're his enemies, not yours. It doesn't take numbers. It takes obedience to God. Obedience to God. I've got, how much time do I have, Mike? Ten. Ten. Lord. I've got so much more on this. David was trapped 
in 1 Samuel 23, and that's when God sent the Philistines in to attack Jerusalem. God knows how to get your enemy's attention. Saul was trapped in 1 Samuel 24 when he was in a cave, and David was in the cave with him, and David could have killed him, but David said he's the anointed of the Lord. Leave him alone. How do you know your enemy here in the church is not the anointed of the Lord? I do. I believe we have a lot of vessels of wrath coming to church. No. I believe we've got people that wrestle with sin here. Are you going to give them a hard time because they're not as mature as you think you are? Notice I said think. You're not as mature as you think you are if you think you've got to give them a hard time. Maturity comes when you quit giving people a hard time and try to reach out to them. The downtrodden. Jesus said, I came to preach the gospel to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the bruised. Do you know that everybody that's bruised, thrao is the word bruised, T-H-R-A-U, it means crushed. You know that everybody that's been crushed has got emotional problems? Everybody. You're only supposed to reach out for the people that's got it together mentally, then you won't reach out for anybody. If they're crushed, and they've had a real bad childhood, uh, their upbringing had a real uh, cruel mother or father. Have you ever asked yourself, what has these other people been through? I've talked to a lot of people here. A lot of people here have had an unbelievable hard time right here sitting here with us this morning. You're going to say, I don't care what you've been through. You need to live right, right now. No, they don't. They can't right now. Maybe with a little tenderness from you and I, they'll learn to in time. We need to reach out for each other in compassion and not try to fight the battles that we think belong to us. I love I love Jehoram, I mean Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat over there in Second Chronicles fourteen. Look at Second Chronicles fourteen. If I'm trying to say don't fight your own battles, you can't. David said, Lord, you, you fight my battles. And you know how we try to fight battles. With our mouths, with our gossip, our whispering. You know what he did? You know what she did? We need to learn to shut our mouths. Had a lady used to come here. I said, have you learned anything? She said, well, I'm trying to learn to shut my mouth. I said, thank you. It takes a long time to learn that. If there's even the lightest inflection that there's a negativeness to your, to your comment, if there's an inflection in your voice that's a put down, the facts can be true, but what you're doing is you're lying with the inflection in your voice. I want you to learn something. The battle is God. It's not yours. David said the battle belongs to the Lord. 
Jehoshaphat over here in Second Chronicles 14, he's going against an insurmountable army. There's no way he can win. It's too big. It's kind of like Goliath. It's kind of like what Jehoshaphat went up against in the third chapter of Second of Second Kings. He said, "Is there a prophet here among these army people that are marching?" A little guy named Elisha said, "I'm here. You got some answers for us? The army's too great." And Elisha delivered him with a few simple words, and God confused the minds of the enemy. Elisha said, Philip, all these holes out here on this battlefield, when the sun comes up, they'll see the holes, and they'll think this is blood of the enemy that's already been shed, and God will confuse their minds. Then you go down there and slaughter them, and they did. I love this here in the 14th chapter of Second Chronicles. Elisha's going up, uh, not Elisha, Jehoshaphat's going against a mighty, mighty army. Wait a minute, I think that's First Chronicles. First Chronicles. No, that's 14, excuse me. I've got all these things I'm looking at. But he's going against the this huge army. I've lost my place here. This is, uh, he's going against this great army. Well, it's over in Chronicles, all. Huh? 14. No, not 14. No, that's Asa in 14. I knew that was Asa. No, I'm talking about Jehoshaphat going out against the enemy. And when he goes against the enemy, he begins to pray, God, deliver us. We can't fight these people. They're too many. And a prophet comes to him and says, you don't have to fight. The battle belongs to the Lord. It's God's battle. In your life, you don't have to open your mouth and gospel and give people a hard time. Do you know that's the heart? That is our biggest enemy is our mouths. Did y'all know that? It's the biggest enemy we've got. There's an old teacher saying, if you can't say something good, don't say nothing at all. And if, they, if somebody's acting up, just withdraw from them. But there ain't no need in trying to rip people apart with your mouth. It's just a waste of time. What you're doing is you're trying to fight the battle that belongs to God. I hope you can understand this. It's this thing of David, he taught us. He taught us depend on God to fight our battles, but then he turned right around and he got real proud and numbered all of the reasons that he won. The only reason he won and the only reason you'll win in life and it won't be somebody giving you a loving cup and you're racing and you're going to become a winner of the Super Bowl. That ain't going to happen. It's going to be the way God wants it to happen. You know what God does? He causes us to be content with the outcome. I've never been as content as I am right now. Gosh, I better get content. I'm getting pretty old. It's time to be content, isn't it? If you wrestle for the rest of your life, you just end up with bad health or worse health, and you never get anything conquered. Has anybody ever won? Has anybody here ever won a battle that you 
proceeded to engage in with your mouth. Has anybody ever won one? Has anybody ever out-argued anybody or put somebody down that you got it fixed with your mouth? Our mouths are our problem. I believe that's the biggest problem that Christians have. We think, well, I don't look at Playboy magazine and I don't go to these R-rated movies and I don't do this and all that. Well, have you tamed your mouth? Have you bridled your tongue? I'm going to need to go back to the third chapter of James about bridling the tongue. I'm going to come back to this subject because I believe this is something the church needs to understand. It's not ours to fix things. We're not supposed to fix anybody. Is that hard to learn? Huh? Is that hard to learn, Tracy? Not fixing people. She's got four sons that she's got a a whole bunch of stuff going on. And she don't know what to do with them. And everybody here has got things they don't know what to do with what they've got. What you do, get in that rut of being obedient to God. Keep your mouth shut. Say what you can without being... Offend if the word of God offends, but don't just be offensive and cutting and abrasive and sharp with people and losing your temper. At my age, I'll tell you, I'll give you some advice of an old man. (coughs) Waste of time. It don't work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for truth. I pray you'll teach us Not to be proud and lifted up, thinking we have all the answers. Because we don't, Lord. The answers come from you, and the battle is yours, not ours. Help us to understand that. We'll praise you for everything, including what we're talking about. Your will is being done. Teach the church to bow to it. Fight our battles. We can't fight them. We don't know how. Lord, put a muzzle on our mouths. We'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Second Chronicles twenty fifteen. I knew it was in that neighborhood. Give me a dollar. Huh? Give me a dollar. Give you a dollar. Okay. You need a dollar? Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I ought to have one here. There's one. I'll give that to Mary. Okay. Okay. Hey brother. How you doing? Oh, well, well, thanks for the message. Well, thank you for being here.
20. Hey, what are you doing? You guys good for food? Huh? You guys good for food? Good for food. No, I don't need anything now. I still got some soup at home. Okay. What are you doing, that guy? Uh, How are you getting along? Uh, doing pretty good. You getting any longer? Uh, I feel I like I'm getting any longer. He might be. He is going about two inches every time I see him. Getting wider. That was one of the most outrageous sermons. <laughs> was it outrageous? Just beautiful. Well, I hope we can get a hold of the fact we can't straighten people out. And it's not. Not how much we've got that straightens people out. It's whether we're buying to God and He'll straighten them out in His time. Do you know my sin? It's not done with my mouth. It's done with my fingers on the internet. Am I correct? Constant arguing and trying to... Arguing is... is haven't Facebook. you figured out it's a waste of time? 